0: If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, we are going to be focusing specifically on verses 7 to 12. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. So if you would, just look with me in your Bibles. We will read, as is our custom, we will read the text, and then we will pray, and we will get to work. Uh, Just to sort of show you the whole overview of the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning. Jesus has given, this is his signature sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching this sermon in Galilee to a, a great group of people. He's probably up on a hillside somewhere overlooking the Sea of Galilee. He's gonna have everybody you can imagine in that crowd. It's gonna be a lot of lame people, a lot of sick people, a lot of diseased people, people who are blind, people who are deaf. Everybody has gotten up to Galilee. The word has gotten out that the getting is good in Galilee. There's a guy up there that can heal you of anything that you, And so he's got this whole group of people gathered around, watching him, listening to him. Within that group of people, you're going to also have both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious sort of spiritual superstars of that day and age. And they've come to sit in judgment and to critique who this young upstart 30-year-old aspiring rabbi, what he's all about. They've come to evaluate his message. And so Jesus, as he launches out into this sermon, the very first thing he says is, is blessed are those who do such and such, so forth and so on. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are poor in spirit. And basically the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon on happiness to be blessed, to be happy, to be granted favor from God, to find true joy, true happiness. And he started off on this path, and he's basically, he started off with the Beatitudes, and then he began to correct and rebuke the Pharisees and the false teaching and their false interpretation of the Word. He goes into a section there in chapter 5 in which he has said, you have heard it was said, you have heard it was taught, it has been explained to you, you have come to understand the Scriptures a certain way, but it's all wrong. You've heard this, but I say unto you, and he will correct, he will rebuke and correct the false teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. Then in chapter 6, he will move into true spirituality, and he will teach that true spirituality can't have any hypocrisy in it. You're either worshiping God, or you're putting on a show for man. And so he will address three specific areas. He will address the way we use our money, the way that we pray, And then also fasting. And all three of those activities can be used to garner the praise of men or they can be used to worship the Father. And so he will begin to rebuke any kind of hypocritical giving, any kind of hypocritical praying, and any kind of hypocritical fasting. Money is a big issue. It was a big issue for them. It's a big issue for those of us living here in North America. So he will return to that theme at the tail end of chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, he moves back into judgment. Specifically, who judges, who doesn't judge how we are to judge. He's going to address spirituality, sanctification within the church, the fact that we are called to remove specks and logs from each other's eye, the right way to do that, so forth and so on. Now he's, going to, he's bringing the sermon to a close. He's transitioning into his conclusion, his final warning, his final exhortation. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 7, verses 7. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 to 12 today. So if you would, read with me. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7. evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son, Jesus, to pay a penalty that we all owe. We thank you, God, for sending him to die in our place and that by believing in him, you will take away our sins and forgive us and adopt us into your family to be called your children, righteous in your eyes. Father, we pray, Lord, as always, if there are any here today or any who are listening over the internet via podcast, Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to their need for you, that they would trust in your son, that they would repent of their sins, and they would become a part of this amazing fellowship that we have, this amazing family, your family. Lord, as we consider your word today, as Christ is teaching us about the law and the prophets and what it means to love, I pray, God, that you would show us how to love the way that you loved us. Show us what it means to truly love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. To look at them, you would not necessarily suspect that there was any mental illness. Tony was a young 33-year-old man. His wife, Lisa, was a beautiful, wonderful bride. They'd been married for five years. Tony was involved in every ministry imaginable. He was serving in an inner-city homeless ministry. He was working with the homeless and the poor. He was doing that as a part-time job. He was also working at a smaller church in town as the associate pastor there. In addition to this, he was balancing several other ministries at the same time, all of them part-time jobs. He worked in his apartment complex taking care of the elderly. Lisa, his wife, was involved working a part-time job, and when she was able to, she assisted him in all that he was doing. And as time wore on, everything looked perfect. As I said, to look at them, you would not necessarily suspect that there was anything wrong with Tony and Lisa, working, serving, being a blessing in their community. And then, one night, inexplicably, Tony had what modern-day psychologists would refer to as a mental breakdown. He snapped. Just out of the clear blue sky, he started screaming and yelling and crying and wandering throughout their house, punching holes in the walls. Lisa began to freak out and was like, calm down, what's wrong? And he would not calm down, and he would not talk rationally, and he would not make any sense, just wandering around the house intermittently crying, sobbing, screaming, and punching holes in the walls. At one point, she put her hands on him to try and to calm him down, and he just flailed to knock her away from him. In a panic, she rushed to the phone. She called 911. She said, what do I do? Police were sent out. They had to subdue him. He was disturbing the peace. He landed in prison that night. He was transferred to a psychiatric ward where they diagnosed him with bipolar disorder and gave him all kinds of psychotropic drugs in order to calm him down and to help him alleviate his mood swings. When members from his church asked what the problem was, he said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I was trying so hard to do and do and do. And the bottom line is I can't do it anymore. Now, Tony is referencing this text right here in Matthew chapter 7. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus, teaching this crowd, makes the statement, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. As we look at this text at face value, it seems fairly straightforward. If there's something that you would desire, if there's a way that you would like to be treated... If with regards to your emotions or your personality, you would appreciate it if people would take that into consideration whenever they talk to you or whenever they interact with you, if that's what you would like to see happen, then that's how you ought to also treat other people. Sounds fairly straightforward. It is known as the golden rule. And, of course, everybody stands in awe and amazement at this golden rule. It's not the first time something similar to this has been proposed. In other religions from the ancient Near East, Confucius, among others, have proposed that the golden rule should be this, but they will express it in the negative. They will say... Whatever you don't want people to do to you, you don't do to them. And so it's sort of a hands-off approach. But Jesus, he flips it around, and he's the first person in history to ever explain it or to teach it this way. And what he says is positively what you wish people would do to you, how they would love you, what you would like to see happen in your life, whatever you're desiring, that's what you should do to others. But our relationship with God should never hinge on what we are or are not doing with other people. Just like Tony, if we're not careful, we can fall into a performance-based religion where our acceptance with God and our being pleased, his being pleased with us is contingent upon how much we're doing, how much we're serving, how involved in ministry we are. As Jesus makes this statement, Here in verse 12, he says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. He makes the statement, this is the law and the prophets. Now, he's talking about actual service, actually doing things. Okay, He's talking about kindness, acts, activities that you engage in to be kind to other people. But what he's really referencing here is the concept of love. And you look and you say, well, I don't see the word love anywhere in there, Josh. It's not, it's not in there. At the same time, that is clearly what Christ is talking about. I just want you to stick your finger right here in Matthew chapter 7, and I want you to flip with me over to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to look at Matthew twenty-three thirty-three. So if you want to just flip over there, I'm going to read to you right quick. Pay special attention to what he says in Matthew 7. This is the law and the prophets. If you flip over to Matthew 23, let me get there. And you go on down to verse 30, uh, 30, oh, I'm in chapter 24. That's what the problem is there. Uh, I'm sorry, it's 22, uh, 22, 33. He makes a statement in Matthew 22, 30, he starts in 34. But when the Pharisees heard that the Sadducees They had gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. They said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Their question is the law, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, that thing we have that we reverence as the scriptures. What's the most important thing there? What's the greatest commandment? What's the thing that we should do? And he makes a statement in verse 37, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Number one, love God. Number two, verse 39, he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, he makes a statement, on these two commandments depend all, now look at the phrase, the law and the prophets. Jesus is summarizing the entirety, the totality of everything that is in the Old Testament. Here in chapter 22, he says, love other people, love them, and he makes a statement, love them as yourself. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, whatever you wish that others would do, to you, do to them. Just to prove the point, if you want to stick your finger there, flip over with me to the book of James. Go to the book of James chapter 2, verse 8. In James 2, 8, the context is that of showing partiality, showing favoritism. Jesus makes, uh, sorry, not Jesus, James makes a statement in James 2, 8, if you really, now look at this, fulfill the royal law, he's referencing the law, Old Testament law, if you fulfill the law according to the Scripture, and he makes the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. In both of those passages, Matthew 22 as well as James chapter 2, there's a reference to law and prophets. There's a reference to Scripture in James chapter 2. In Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself, so love is clearly a part of the picture. And again, in James chapter 2, love is a part of the picture. So we're talking about love. When you think of love, it's unfortunate, but a lot of people, even though they may not visualize him this way, a lot of people, when they think of Jesus they tend to think of him as sort of this Cupid kind of figure. You know, he's sort of like this just sort of this congenial person that's just love, 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 you know, and, and he's really, really soft, and he just wants everybody to get along and, and to be nice and happy and pleasant, and there's never any tough words spoken. There's never any rebuke or correction spoken. And so a lot of people, they like to, to point to this text and they like to say, you see, this is the Jesus I like. This is the Jesus that I'm okay with. I want a Jesus that just talks about loving people and doing good to other people. The problem is, again, this in context follows pearls before swine, pulling out specks and logs from each other's eyes. The context is that this statement follows after such intense teaching as what to do with your money, how to fast, how to pray. Jesus is all about love. But the love he's talking about flies in the face of the world's definition of love. Now, there are a couple of statements that we hear bandied about quite a bit, and I have no doubt that some of you guys have heard these. Statement number one. I can't love people. I can't serve people. I can't do for other people until I learn how to love myself. I'm sure many of you have heard that. You've either heard it espoused in pop culture. Maybe even some of you have heard it in discussions. Maybe some of you have even used that phrase. I can't love. I can't serve. I can't love other people until I learn how to love myself. That's number one. Number two, This is another really important one that we hear too often. I have to be loved. I have to be loved before I can love other people. So there's two ways of looking at the equation. Number one, I have to learn how to love myself before I can love you. Or, you know what, before I can actually do a good job of loving you, I have to, be, I have to receive love. There are two books that were published that hit a nerve. Okay. Number one, this was published a number of years ago by Melody Beatty. It's the title of the book and this is totally secular it is nothing Christian about it whatsoever. the title of the book was codependent no more and she was writing this uh, on this issue of codependency where basically when it comes to our social interactions, when it comes to interacting with each other, we need the approval of other people we are dependent upon their approval and so we're not able to love people if we're not receiving love and, and so this becomes a really convoluted sort of complex exercise where if people 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 aren't loving us, then we're not able to love. in order for us to love, in order for us to do a good job being us, being who we are supposed to be, we have to learn not to care about what other people think. We shouldn't be so dependent upon them. And so she writes this book, and she says the title of the book is Codependent No More. And she basically diagnoses the problem is that we are overly concerned with what other people think. And so we should stop caring about what other people think, and we should just learn to, what does she say? Love ourselves right? We just need to learn to love ourselves more. Now, the Christian community heard that, and they thought, hmm, that's problematic because, you know, we are called as Christians to love other people. And so an individual by the name of Gary Chapman comes along, and he writes this book, and I'm sure all of you have heard of this, The Five Love Languages, okay? The Five Love Languages. Number one, and he identifies that there are five specific ways in which we interact with each other, in which we want to be loved or we express love to each other. Love language number one, words of affirmation, affirming words. Love language number two, quality time, spending quality time with each other. Love language number three, giving gifts. People like to receive nice gifts and and things of this nature. Love language number four, physical affection, hugs, things of that nature. Number five, acts of service, doing something nice for someone, okay? Gary Chapman identifies five different love languages, and he says basically what Melody Beatty is saying about how we have to learn to love ourselves is wrong, in the sense that we have to learn how to love each other, but we all understand love in a slightly different language, And so, Gary Chapman's response is, you have to know your specific love language, and then in order for you to do a good job of loving your spouse, the book is written in the context of marital relationships, your spouse has to speak your love language, has to know your love language, has to engage you in the way that you are uniquely wired and that will solve the problems in your relationship. Now, I just want you to get those two ideas in your mind. Depending upon what other people think of us, number one, Melody Beatty, codependent, no more. And Number two, Gary Chapman, five love languages. Okay? Now look at the text. And let's just hear what Jesus says specifically. Whatever you wish... That others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. Do, do you hear any kind of elaborate or extensive sort of qualification on the front end of that statement? Do you hear Jesus hitting the pause button saying, okay, now let's talk about what I mean when I talk about love and doing things? You have a love language and you gotta be, you gotta have your love cup sort of filled out according to your love language, and then you'll be ready to go and love other people. Do you see that anywhere in the text? Now, the next question is this. Uh, It depends on what people think about me. And in order for me to love them, I've got to sort of separate myself from other people. I can't care what other people think about me. I need to not worry so much what other people think about me. Is that in the text? Whatever you wish that others, look at that, that others would do to you, you do to them. And you see, this is a very complicated teaching. And it's difficult. The world tries to unpack it in a couple of different ways. Christians try to unpack it in a couple of different ways. But all those qualifications and all those caveats are forced upon the text. You do need to consider other people. You do need to take other people into consideration and what they're thinking and what they're feeling. But at the same time, there's no issue here about whether, whether or not you have to have a love cup filled or they have to be speaking your love language. That's totally foreign as well. Jesus is very straightforward. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do to them. There's no qualifications, there's no exceptions, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's just straightforward. A number of years ago, I was serving as the associate at, uh, at Cedar Heights Baptist in Dallas, Texas, and we had sent a group of college students to China to share the gospel with, with Chinese students. They were going under the guise of being an ESL teacher, teaching English as a second language. And so they were going over there to teach English as a second language. Now, it was clearly understood that the Chinese government, who was allowing these ESL teachers to come in, did not want them talking about Christianity or their faith or anything like that, right? Like, they could talk about any number of things, but they clearly did not want these, uh, these folks from our church talking about Jesus. Now, of course, the whole idea of us sending them over there was so that they would teach them English, help them with their English skills, but also at the same time to tell them about Jesus. Like, that was the whole point. Yes, we know what the Chinese government would want you to do, but at the same time, we have to be faithful to Christ. G- Peter, preaching in Acts chapter 2, they're saying, hey, stop preaching in Jesus. Whether or not we should preach Jesus or not, whether or not it's right to follow God or you guys, you figured that out. We can't help but tell people what we have seen and what we heard and what we know to be the truth. And so we sent this group over there, and they come back, and this student is saying to me, you know, I had a couple of opportunities to tell people about Jesus. But I thought, you know, I wouldn't really appreciate it if, a, if a, an Islamic fellow came to my school and tried to convert me to Islam. And so I thought, you know, if I don't want an Islamic guy trying to convert me to Islam, then really, if that's what I wouldn't want to see happen to me then who am I to try to force my religion on other people? So he's trying to follow the golden rule here. If I don't want this being done to me, then why should I try to do this to others? You see, there are a lot of ways of looking at this golden rule. All of them are problematic. But to really understand what Jesus is saying, you got to look at the very first word. In verse 12, he says, so. Maybe your Bible says, therefore, or as a result of. In the Greek language, it's a particle. It basically links the statement that Jesus is making in verse 12 to the text that precedes it. He's saying in verse 12, as a result of. Therefore, because of what I have just said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So, what did Jesus get done saying? What did he just finish saying? The preceding passage, the preceding paragraph is straightforward. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be open. Now that's six different times in two verses that he's encouraging people to ask, seek, knock. And he's promising if you ask, seek, knock, if you pursue your father, if you come to him and you're asking questions, he will give it to you. Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. Again, just in case you missed me the first time. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it is opened. It will be opened. Why is Jesus repeating himself? Because, number one, we're not tempted to go to our Father for everything. The emphasis is also on the fact that we should not only go to the Lord looking for help and assistance and guidance, but that we should repeatedly go to the Lord for help, guidance, and assistance. Then he goes on to say, which, and this is a powerful illustration, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, Jesus is saying, as a result of this teaching, as a result of this, and He's talking about praying, He's talking about repeatedly praying and going to the Father daily and asking over and over again, as a result of your relationship with the Father, as a result of you being His Child, as a result of all of that, whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. A golden rule cannot be properly understood apart from knowing who you are in Christ. That is so frequently missed. And it is so frequently misunderstood. The question is, Do you want other people to treat you according to your fallen nature, who you used to be? Or do you desire new things now as a result of who you are in Christ? In other words, has your nature changed? Has your personality changed? Before, you may not have enjoyed people coming to you and saying, You're wrong you need to repent of your sins, and you need to trust in Jesus. But now, if you're a Christian, if your desire as a Christian is to honor God, then you welcome the Scriptures. You welcome what the Bible says. So, if you desire to grow in your relationship with Father, if you desire to grow in holiness, if you desire to look more and more every day like a child of the Father, then if that's the desire you have in your life, out of that desire, out of that new nature, out of that new person that you have become, do to others as you would wish to be done to you. You see, if we look at the golden rule, as so many do, and if we rip it out of context, as so many like to do, then it can be twisted to mean just about anything we want it to mean. I don't like people telling me I'm wrong, so therefore I'm not going to tell another person he's wrong. I don't like people trying to tell me about their religion, so I'm not going to tell other people about my religion. I don't like people saying this to me. I don't like going to church, so I'm not going to tell other people they need to go to church. You see, all of that misunderstands the gold rule. As far as God is concerned, as far as Jesus is preaching, the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, that is God speaking to mankind, all of it can be understood as trying to teach us something about who we are and how we are supposed to live. We are supposed to be people who see God as a father. We are supposed to relate to him as our children. We are supposed to hear his instruction, and out of that nature and out of that understanding, whatever we desire, whatever we seek, we are supposed to be bringing that and doing that for other people. You can't see it any other way. So really, to understand the golden rule, you have to understand exactly what Jesus is saying in the preceding context. So, number one, our relationship with God needs to be a relationship of constantly seeking him and asking him. There is no way to fulfill the golden rule if we are not dependent upon the Father. You know, when I was living in Idaho, my dad, he decided that one day we, that is me and my brother and him, were all going to go for a hike up this ridiculous mountain. Uh, and, of course, you know, we'd never hiked this mountain before. You know, in this, it's in the southeastern corner of, Pocate- of Idaho and Pocate- near Bo- Pocatello. And it's basically all flat right there. It's about four hours north of Salt Lake. And so he says, you know, boys, I want to go hiking. So we're like, okay. So we get our little water bottles, and, and we fill them up with water. And we go out to this, this mountain. They called it Big Butte, okay? And it's basically flat all around flat, 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 and then in the middle of nowhere, there's this giant just rock that just sh- shoots up into the sky. It's the strangest rock formation I've ever seen. And he said, we pull up to this thing, and we're kind of looking at it, and we're like, okay, so how far up are we going to go? And he's going, we're going to go up there, and we're all like, oh, okay. And then he kind of looks at us, he goes, no, no, no we're going to go up there, and we look at him, and we're like, oh, all the way up there, okay, that's a long hike. He's like, yeah, 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 but it's not that far. You know, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a piece of cake, right? Because on the ground, looking up into the altitude, you know, looking up into the sky, your, your perception is always exact, right? You know, it's, it's, it doesn't look that far. Just... So we started up this thing. It's supposed to be a two-hour hike. I have brought water to quench my thirst for about two hours. You know, my expert analysis of the situation. Five hours later as we are thinking we're within an hour or two of the summit, uh, I'm about to die. And I am sweating like I am soaked. My father is in peak physical condition because he hikes, he likes to do these sorts of things. And finally I just said, Dad, I can't go any further. He says, why? I said, because I drank all my water like three hours ago and I don't have any water left and I'm about to die. And he says, you know, I was wondering how long you were going to wait to ask me. And he's got like three extra water bottles that he's hiking around with that he hasn't even touched yet. And it's one of those moments where are like, why did you do that to me, you know? Like, why would you hold out on me for this long? It's like, I'm going to have this emotional traumatic experience for the rest of my life. I'm going to use it as sermon illustration repeatedly. You shouldn't have done this to me, you know? Like, I can't believe that. And he's like, well, you know, you have to learn to ask your father. He who asks receives, right? And he gives me the water. I wish I could tell you that everything was easy after that, but no, it was still really, really hard. Uh, But I did get a drink of water. Now, so many of us, we try to live the Christian life, and we think, okay, this is the destination. I'm going to go from point A to point B. And using our own understanding of the situation, which is routinely flawed and usually wrong. We say, this is what it's going to take me to get from here to there. And we never pause to say to God, okay, God, how am I going to get from here to there? And we start off on this journey. It takes way longer than we thought it would take. And then when we're still not where we thought we would be, we get desperate, we get frustrated, and we are tempted to quit. Ministry is hard. This week, you will serve eight hours a day, minimum, probably a lot more than that, getting ready for the next day. You will go for five straight days. For those of you who are over on North Shore, it will be hot. We had 40 degree plus heat. Good news is you're only going to be out there for three, four, or five hours, we hope. Okay? You will say to yourself, you will be tempted. I'm going to take corners. I'm going to take shortcuts. I know that God loves these children. And I know that God wants these children to know him. And so, yes, I'm going to be careful to share my faith. But come Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I know this because I have worked with Kyla Blyenberg for five years now. It's go, 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 go. Okay, and it's tough. And by Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're thinking... You know, I'm not gonna memorize my lines for the next day's drama. I'm just gonna sort of study them a little bit tonight, and and, and I'll just wing it tomorrow. It'll be pretty close. You're thinking, you know, when it comes time for the kids to run around and play during rec time, normally I would be there, like supervising them and you know making sure they're not like bludgeoning each other to death. But today, I'm just gonna kind of turn a blind eye, you know. If I don't see it, it's not happening, right? Listen. We're in war here, guys. Satan is holding these kids in his grasp. And they need the Savior. And Jesus has asked us in this room to represent him to them. Now, when we do that, we are prone to get tired, and we are tempted to quit, and we certainly are looking for every possible shortcut we can take, especially by day four and five. Is that how Jesus loved you? You see, when he is preaching here in this text, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. The cross is not absent from his thought process. He is fully aware because he is Christ, he has every understanding of the horror he's about to experience in two years' time from this moment. He understands that he's going to go to the cross. He understands that he's going to be beaten. He understands he's going to be tortured. He understands that every second of the way, when it comes to getting tired, when it comes to quitting early, when it comes to taking shortcuts, when it comes to your salvation, no one was tempted more than him to quit halfway on the cross. And he did not quit. And he did not take shortcuts. You mattered that much to him. He loved you that fully, that totally, that completely. And so this week, it's a tough week we've got in front of us. And I'm not going to blame you for wanting to quit on a Wednesday or a Thursday, especially those of you who are out in the heat on North Shore. You're from Texas. Come on, man. This is nothing. In all seriousness, do you know what my counsel to you is? The scriptures are saying, ask, seek, knock. You know, I have two beautiful girls. They ask for some of the most ridiculous things sometimes. They, they say, Daddy, we don't want to eat dinner. We want to eat ice cream. And, you know, I agree with that. I would like to just eat ice cream all the time as well. Um, my desires are not different from their desires. My sinful, fallen desires are not different from their sinful, fallen desires. I just want to eat sugar all day long, right? Like, that sounds awesome. But the problem is, I know, having lived a few years, that there's no wisdom in that. And, you know, on occasion, I've given in to that sort of indulgence, and I've seen the, the people they become when they get, you know, just pure sugar, and it's crazy. And so I'm like, no... No, like, we need to eat dinner. And my wife's like, yes, thank you. Thank you for supporting me in that. You know, we need to feed our children good food. They want what they think would be best for them. They want pure sugar, ice cream, candy bars, whatever. It doesn't matter as long as it's sugar, you know. I'm convinced my youngest, Olivia, if I just pop the top off the sugar jar, she just eats sugar, you know, just straight up. That's all she wants, okay? That's not best for them. They think it is. But it's not. And any parent in here, any father or any, hu- any wife that's in here, you know sometimes what your kids want, even though they think that's what's in their best interests, you know it's not. And so you don't give it to them. People approach this text and they say, you know, Christianity is all about going to God and Him giving you what you want. That's just not what he is saying here. If you need something, go to your father, and whatever he gives you, because he is your father, that's exactly what you need. So this week, as we're going through this week, we're going to get tired, and we're going to want to quit. And we're going to pray, we're going to say, please, God, give me energy. He might give you energy, and you might not get any energy. You might wake up Thursday morning and be just as dead tired. Some of you will wake up and you'll feel rejuvenated. You'll be like, yes, the Lord's blessing me. He's giving me more energy. I've got more get up and go. Some of you wake up and you're more tired than you were the night before. You're thinking, what is this? I prayed God give me energy and he's not. I don't know exactly what God is going to show you this week. For some of you, he's going to be there and he's going to be your right hand and he's going to walk you through it every step of the way. He's going to give you the energy you need. It's going to be great. You will represent Christ to children in a wonderful way. And for some of you, you're going to be more tired after praying and asking God for help. And how you choose how to respond out of that, you will have the opportunity to represent Christ in a more meaningful way. See, Jesus loves us, but he also suffered for us. Does it touch your heart that he suffered for you? Some of you are going to have to suffer this week for these kids and for their parents. You like to know that Christ suffered for you. Christ would like to know, Christ would like for these kids to know that Christians are still prepared to suffer for them the key is not to give people whatever they want to not look at it from whatever I would like to see happen, I'll do it for them but to look at it from your father's perspective to look at it from Christ's perspective to look at it from the perspective of who you are in Christ with that understanding with that realization whatever you wish happened to you whatever you wish people would do for you, you do that for them. Tony and Lisa, they uh, were on intense psychotropic medication. He was not able to perform at any kind of a level what he used to be because his mind was now altered by these substances. And he began to seek out biblical counsel and biblical response to his issues. And a lot of, as he was talking with, with his pastors and with people in his church, there was a phrase that kept coming out repeatedly as Tony and Lisa began to share their story of how they went from being involved in every aspect of ministry to now being diagnosed bipolar and having to take drugs. And the phrases that he kept using were People didn't appreciate me. People didn't recognize how hard I was working. People weren't grateful for what I did or for the sacrifices that I made. As I began to talk more and more to him, it became very, very clear that for Tony and to a lesser extent his wife, Lisa, their identity and who they were, who, how they thought of themselves was rooted in how other People saw them, not how God saw them in Christ. And so they were laboring to earn their standing with God, and they were measuring that standing based upon what other people were saying. The biblical counselors began to show them that in Christ, by faith in what he had done for them on the cross. That they were his children. They were adopted. And that life did not now consist of doing every possible thing you could possibly do to earn the approval of the world. But because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, you are loved. You are righteous in Christ. And out of that relationship, all efforts for ministry should flow. And some of you this week, I want you to not forget that. You're not working for the approval of the people around you, you're not working for the approval of us here at the bridge, you're not working even for God's approval. In Christ, He loves you and you're adopted. If you're tempted to do a bad job, if you're tempted to cut corners, remember who you are in Christ. And remember what Jesus did on the cross. After several years, Tony, against the advice of his doctors, Cold turkey quit taking all of his meds. And he was completely and totally restored. He didn't actually have bipolar disease, he's just trying to work to keep people happy. In Christ, he found freedom. And he is today serving once again in a high capacity for ministry. Not because he was working for the approval of others, but because he was reflecting on how much Christ loved him and how much he had done for him on the cross. Church, listen to me. What you're doing this week is good and wonderful. and We are so grateful. But everything you are, As a child in God was purchased for you 2,000 years ago on a torture stake outside of Jerusalem. Don't try to earn your way to heaven this week. Rest in the cross and do your best for Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.